Hello, and welcome to Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships. I'm Rabbi Brent Spodek up in the Hudson Valley, and I am thrilled to be together today with Jackson Katz to discuss issues of being a good Jewish lover, how we love each other better. So Jackson Katz, PhD, is an educator, author, lecturer, and social theorist who has done tremendous work on issues of gender, race, and violence. He is the co-founder of Mentors in Violence Prevention, a hugely influential gender violence prevention program, and the first major program of its kind working with professional sports teams in the U.S. military. He is the author of two critically acclaimed books, The Macho Paradox, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help, and Man Enough, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and the Politics of Presidential Masculinity, as well as the films Tough Guys and The Man Card, White Male Identity Politics from Nixon to Trump. His TEDx talk, Violence Against Women, It's a Men's Issue, is available with subtitles in 27 languages and has a total of more than 5 million views online. I'll add personally, I've been familiar with your work, Jackson, for 20 plus years now, and it's had a huge influence on me in trying to figure out how not simply to be, how to not be a bad actor, but how to try to be a actively good actor in the complicated world of gender and race today. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks very much, Rabbi Spodek, for having me on. It's a, it's a great opportunity and pleasure to meet you and to be on your very interesting and important podcast. Well, thanks. And thanks for making the time. So the text I want to look at with you, I need to introduce this properly. It's a Pretty obscure texts from the 12th century, and I learned this text for the first time from Professor Alana Stein-Hain, who introduced this text, and when she taught this text, uh, it was a room of probably about 200 rabbis, scholars, academics. I don't know that anybody in the room had ever heard of this text before. So it's really thanks to Alana that this text, even though it's been in the books for hundreds of years, is in our consciousness. And the story is a complicated one. For folks who are interested, the full story will be available in Hebrew and English in the show notes. I'm going to give just the beginning of the story and hopefully through there explore some of the dynamics in the story and in our world. Given my gender and the format of the show, I anticipate about half of the episodes to be two men talking about relationships. As we all are, I am shaped by and limited by my background and experiences, in my case, as a white-presenting, cisgendered, heterosexual male. I am sure that there will be times when I am clumsy with my language, and for that, I apologize in advance. I think about gender, race, and power very differently than I did when I was a teenager in Brooklyn in the 1980s, and I am continuously growing in my understanding, or at least I hope I am. I think it's important that men who are trying to be more thoughtful about these issues talk about them publicly, even at the risk of misstepping. Lots of thinkers, including Bell Hooks and the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, talk about how many societal problems stem from male alienation from our own feelings, and I'm hoping that this show can be a small part of changing that. Just a quick heads up here. The text we're going to look at isn't graphic, but it is centered on the attempted rape of a woman. I invite you to be discerning as to whether this is the right thing for you or any young people who are with you to listen to right now. So, here's the story. A man leaves for a long business trip and asks his brother to look after and protect his wife while she's away. Now, it might jar 21st century sensibilities to think that a woman alone needed a man to look after her, but in the 13th century, that would have been an unremarkable statement of fact. The brother-in-law, however, doesn't protect her. Far from it. He comes to her each and every day and says, submit to me, 
and I will do whatever you need and give you whatever you want. She consistently refuses the advances of her brother-in-law, and then he tries to rape her by force. She screamed a great and bitter scream, but nobody saved her. While her screams were not effective in summoning help, they did, at least momentarily, scare off her attacker, her brother-in-law, who fled. When the rapist recognized that the woman would not submit to his will, he musters the power of the government to exact his revenge. He hires two men to falsely testify in court that our heroine had, quote, loose morals and was having an illicit affair with a servant. The court, abandoning any pretense to the proper procedures painstakingly prescribed in the Talmud, sentences the woman to immediate death. They take her to the execution chamber and stone her, burying her under a heap of stones, as is the law for one who's been sentenced to death. Miraculously, though, she doesn't die. After three days under the pile of stones, she's discovered by another man who, together with his son, is traveling to Jerusalem to find a teacher of Torah. They encounter our heroine, weak and battered, but alive. And when she tells the man her whole tragic story, something incredible happens. He believes her. He believes a woman, a woman who accuses a powerful man of sexual assault, who proclaims her own innocence, even in face of a court which wrongly found her guilty. This man who discovered her calls her my daughter, he protects her, and most remarkably, he hires her to teach Torah to his son. This man not only believes in her innocence, not only does he believe in her virtue, but he believes she is an appropriate teacher of Torah. Needless to say, it would not have been a common thing for there to be a female teacher of Torah in the medieval era. The story goes on from there, and I'm not going to tell the rest of it, but folks who want to find it, it's in the notes. But I'll mention this. There is a happy ending at the end of the story, but not because she marries a man and not because she becomes a mother, the classic happy endings for tales and fables. The story is remarkable in part for its focus on the woman and her hard-won mastery over her own life. So none of these characters are named, which is pretty common for these type of stories. But this woman interacts, by my count, with at least six different men or groups of men. The husband who went away on business, the brother-in-law who repeatedly attempted to rape her, the men who did not save her, the other men who offered false testimony in court, the men of the court who sentenced her to death, and then finally, the man who uncovered her and hired her as a teacher for his son. And Jackson, one of the things that you said in your TEDx talk that has really stuck with me is perpetrators aren't these monsters who crawl out of the swamp and come into town and do their nasty business and then retreat into the darkness. They are a product of communities and cultures which permit, enable, and protect them. And so I see the men in this story, men who are husbands, brothers-in-laws, members of courts, people in positions of authority— and I'm wondering, what do we, two men and, and millions of other men in the 21st century, what are we to learn from this story? What might we learn from the behaviors of these men of how not to act, and maybe even more importantly, how we should act with regard to women? Wow. Well, thank you, Rabbi Spudek, for uh, that focused storytelling and that question. I mean, one of the things that I think of as I hear those different men who were part of the story is how systematic the problem is and how social norms are implicated all over the place. In other words, it's not about individual pathology, like some the individual man who raped his sister-in-law 
who was obviously a perpetrator and obviously should be held accountable for that. And we should talk about him. But it's not just about him. I mean, there's so many other men who, as individuals and representing systems that played a role in this. And I think that's true when it comes to sexual assault and domestic violence and sexual harassment. It's not just about individual pathology. It's about a system of sexism, if you will, of male power. Absolutely. Where this woman is the victim of this systemic reality, as well as the individual man. In other words, the court that sentenced her, that's supposedly speaking for the larger society that condemns her for what happened to her. That's not about individual pathology. That's about a systemic social norm. When we talk about sexual assault in the 21st century, whether it's on college campuses and communities, the individuals who commit these acts aren't just individuals. They are products of social systems. In fact, on university campuses, the vast majority of men who commit sexual assault don't even think they've committed a crime. They think that what they've done is normal or within the normative range. And so the solutions to these problems aren't running from one broken man to the next, one pathological man, one toxic man to the next, and trying to figure out what went wrong in his brain and his moral sort of development, but rather taking a step back and saying, why is this happening so commonly? And how are all of us as individuals and as citizens of societies, how are all of us in a sense implicated? And when it comes to men, the key question is, how can individual men and men in their roles, in their spheres of influence, think about what we, what they can do differently so that the status quo doesn't continue? I really appreciate that distinction between the large structural issues and the individual issues. Because I, you know, like most people, I'm not in a position of massive authority. I can't change all of American culture. But I think about so much of the work you've done on the bystander approach and what it is for people who are in their own spheres of influence. And I'm curious if we could play with the story for a moment. So we have this guy who attempts to rape his sister-in-law. He goes and solicits two other men to be false witnesses, right? And these men must know they're being asked to lie because they didn't see this happen. And I wonder if you could, you know, rewrite the story. The rapist comes to, or the aspiring rapist comes to these other two men and says, hey, buddy, I got a situation. I need a little help. I'm going to pay you $100 or whatever it is. I need you to come to court and tell this story about this woman because otherwise I'm going down. Can you come to court and lie for me and frame this woman? If you were rewriting the story now, what would you hope that those two men who've been invited to participate in the system of state-sanctioned violent misogyny, how do you wish they would have responded? <laughs> well, of course, they're violating the, one of the Ten Commandments, you know what I mean? Bearing false witness. I would hope that other men would turn to a, a man who says that and say, are you kidding me? This, there's no way I'm going to participate in this. You, you just committed a horrible act and I'm not going to... I'm not going to lie for you to enable you to get away with this. And one of the ways that the bystander approach operates, and and by the way, for people who aren't familiar with the bystander approach, it's a way of thinking about the responsibility of everyone in a given peer culture to address before, during, or after the fact, address harassment, abuse, or violence by challenging and interrupting abusive behavior and by supporting victims and survivors of that behavior, and by, to the extent possible, create helping to create a climate within a peer culture whereby abusive behavior is seen as completely socially unacceptable because it's contrary to the group norms. And it, it's a way to get, for example, the bystander approach as it's applied to men and sexual assault is getting men to challenge and interrupt each other's behavior. And not just the sexually assaulted behavior, but even the attitudes that lead to it, the comments, the, the derogatory, misogynist comments that men will make sometimes in male culture without women present. 
Imagine if men would say to other men, I don't appreciate these misogynist comments, or I don't appreciate how you're talking to your girlfriend, or, you, or, or how you're treating your wife. You're my friend, you're my, you're my colleague, and I care about you, but I can't remain silent in the face of this. This is not cool. It's not all right. If we had that sensibility that was permeating male culture in the United States and all over the world, you'd see radical diminution of sexual violence and domestic violence and sexual harassment, because the vast majority of men who engage in this behavior are not, as I said earlier, pathological. They're otherwise normal guys in most instances. There are, there are exceptions. There are individuals who are so deeply pathological that none of this is going to matter to them. But the vast majority of men who commit sexual and domestic violence are otherwise normal. And the bystander approach is a way to get everybody around them in their family, in their, like I said, in their school, on their team, in their workplace, or in the larger society, to make it clear to them that that's not okay. And it's also the bystander approach is a way to get people to support the victims and targets of harassment, abuse, and violence, and make it clear to them that we are not in support of that abusive behavior and we'll do whatever we can to help you. The bystander approach, as I teach it, it's not about strangers on the street. It's about what we call known peer cultures. And in your story that we began with, people knew each other. These weren't strangers. This is right. part of parts of a community. The vast majority of domestic and sexual violence, in the vast majority of cases, the perpetrator knows the victim, the victim knows the perpetrator, and the other people know, in some cases, both the perpetrator and the victim. And so this isn't about strangers in the street. And one of the reasons why so few men speak up and challenge their friends and their colleagues when they act out in sexist ways is not because of their physical fear of violent retribution, although in some cases that is true. It's social fear. It's social anxiety. It's the concern that if you speak up, it's going to be awkward. He's my friend. He's my colleague. How is he going to think about me? Am I going to lose status in the group because they're going to see me as not being one of the guys or see me as being kind of soft or taking women's side in some fictional battle between the sexes? And all these anxieties and self-doubts that a lot of men have, the way that a lot of men resolve them is to put their head down and to remain silent and to say, you know what, this is too complicated. I don't want to go there. And, and then they tell themselves stories often. And the stories include stories that allow them to maintain this, their sense of themselves as the kind of person who would speak up when they see injustice with the reality that they didn't speak up in the face of injustice. The way that they often resolve that, that tension or that contradiction is to tell themselves stories like, it wouldn't have mattered anyways what I said. Or, you know what, you know, he, when he's drinking, he acts a certain way and and, and I'm not going to really jump in because it's not going to make a difference. Or maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe what I saw isn't as bad as what I thought it was. Or maybe, you know, there's even, you know, there's other reasons. But sure. the point being, all of this allows men individually to not do something that'll cause some discomfort. What can you do to interrupt that process? And how can you do that with integrity? I hear that. And what was coming back to me was a memory from college. So I was uh, I was a transfer student. So I was in my new college. You know, I showed up. People already knew each other. They'd been there a few years. And a friend of mine invited me to a party. And so I go to the party and it's a bunch of guys sitting around. I don't know any of them except for my friend who invited me. And they're sitting around talking about who's hot on campus, right? There was nothing egregious. Nobody was raping anyone, but there was very much a culture of objectification, right? Here's a bunch of guys sitting around and in that group, as in groups have known this literally since the time of the Bible, nothing brings a group together as quickly and effectively as unifying around a common enemy. So you had a bunch of men there, and I, I couldn't have articulated this at the time, 
But you had a bunch of men there who were solidifying their common bonds with each other by otherizing and alienating the women on campus and also indulging in their own fantasies of, you know, oh, I'd want to sleep with this one or I'd want to sleep with that one. And I was aware simultaneously of being uncomfortable, but also, like you said, I wasn't worried that if I didn't participate, somebody was going to beat me up. But I was the new kid on campus. I wanted to make friends. These guys, didn't they, they weren't monsters. They weren't the people out there raping. They're, they're being like, oh, that girl is hot, which is, on the one hand, not the worst thing somebody could do. On the other hand, it's clearly an objectification. It's not engaging with her as a person. It's engaging with her as a body. And I... Look back and I remember, I mean, this was a while ago, but I remember just sort of standing there awkwardly in the room. I certainly didn't say any bold statement of, my brothers, this is an affront to the God-given dignity of all of these women. And, you know, on the one hand, I have some compassion for myself back then and be like, right, like as you're describing it, it's a... It's a hard situation where the sin is not egregious at that it was a gross moral failing to stand there the way it would have been if somebody was actually, God forbid, being raped in front of me. But neither do I want to defend it and say this was the high watermark of my ethical action. And I'm trying to think like, okay, if I could go back to my 19-year-old self or I've got an 11-year-old and a 15-year-old thinking about them heading to college and, and being in situations like that. In those situations where you're trying to navigate your own social standing and it's the misogyny that precedes gender-based violence, it's the rape culture, we might call it, how might an awkward 19-year-old who's also trying to make friends, how might you advise them to navigate something like that? Well, that's, that's well put. I think young men need to hear from other young men, not just from you know intellectuals or teachers or rabbis or, or others, but as we say in the MVP, Mentors and Violence Prevention Model, they don't just learn from the front of the room. They also learn laterally. They don't sure. just learn vertically. They learn laterally. They hear other young men saying similarly, you know what? I'm not sure what to say in those situations. Or I felt really awkward about that situation. And I didn't say something either. If guys hear that from each other, right? They often then realize, wait a second, maybe I'm not the only one that has the problem with this. And we know from this research, and not my own research, but research that I have used, that the single most important factor in whether a man will speak up or a young man will speak up in the face of misogynist behavior by one of his fellow young men, the single biggest factor of whether he'll do that is whether he thinks that other young men in the room, and I say older men too, because this is not just about young men, but other men in the room or in the group are similarly uncomfortable with the behavior because if they think they're the only one, yeah. then they're much less likely to take a risk because obviously there's, there's safety in numbers. In other words, if they know that other guys are also uncomfortable, then they're more likely to say something, which is one of the reasons why those of us who are educators, who are teachers, who are parents, we're the ones who have to create the adults, have to create the context for these kind of dialogues. Because these young men and young women and others are not going to organically have these conversations. I think if we create those conversations, they're going to participate. But this is why another way to think about this is the bystander who speaks up. And I use the word bystander as a synonym for friend, teammate, classmate, colleague, coworker, family member. The person who speaks up and says something is actually a leader. This is a leadership act to speak up. So the act of bystander is really another word for a leader. And by framing the person who speaks up as a leader, as a person of integrity, a person who's strong, for example, a young man who has fears and doubts and anxieties, but fights through them and says, that's wrong. I don't, I don't appreciate that. That's a leader. You're framing it aspirationally and positively rather than wagging your finger and saying, you guys better stop being toxic. You better stop being bad or misogynist. It's more like, come on, guys, we need more men who have the courage and the strength 
to break our complicit silence. It's related to the concept of calling in versus calling out, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Loretta Ross, the African-American woman who's a longtime domestic and sexual violence advocate and now professor at Smith College, she talks about calling in white people to the anti-racist struggle rather than calling them out for racism or calling in men to anti-sexist struggle rather than calling them out for misogyny. And I, I mean, I do think people should be held accountable for their behavior, but I do think that this calling in concept and, and challenging them to, to be leaders and to go with the better angels of their nature, even though it's sometimes difficult, is a more productive way. And I think a lot of men and young men can hear that now. But if men, by the way, don't hear other men talking about this, the only people they hear talking about it is women who are often, I appreciate, very frustrated at how few men have shown up as strong allies or strong you know, advocates on these matters. If men hear from other men, it becomes more normalized. It becomes more like an expectation of men and young men rather than it's something special. And I often say when I travel and I do, you know, give lectures all over the world and I've been talking about this stuff for a long time, I still encounter people who have never heard a man say the things that I'm saying or say it with the passion that I say it. And I often say that that's a failure of us because we as men should have made this common and this should be normative. And over time, in, in several decades, I hope that they look back at the late 20th and early 21st century and say, oh, my God, back then it was crazy how much sexism there was and men's violence against women and harassment and abuse. Well, so a few thoughts there. One, in maybe a, a little positive note of some shifts in the culture. So I was watching, I think it was Tough Guys 2, uh, the remake of your initial movie with my 11-year-old. And there's a part in the film, if, if for folks who haven't seen it, it's definitely worth watching. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. But you have a little scene of a bunch of young men saying, what does it mean to be a man? And it's, you know, they say uh, strong, in control, dominant, aggressive, things like that. And my 11-year-old who I was watching it with, right, he stopped the video and he was like, I've never heard that. And, you know, he's an 11-year-old, he's my son, and he's gone to very progressive schools his whole life. So it might be that within his little bubble, he hasn't heard that. And that might shift by the time he graduates college. But there are there certainly are pockets of shifts in the culture. I'm struck by what you're saying about the bystander approach. Honestly, how much it uh, resonates with biblical values. I mean, it is a core explicit value in the Torah that we should not stand idly by the blood of our neighbor, the blood of our fellow. Right. And the idea that it's not enough to just not kill people, you can't stand idly by. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is first that initial step of you've got to do something. And then the question is, what? And I really appreciate your framing of it as a question of leadership. I'm thinking both of myself at that party at Wesleyan University 30 years ago and the man in the story. So the man in the story had his son there. And I'm, I'm thinking about him exercising leadership for the audience, so to speak, of his son and saying, possibly consciously, possibly not, you know, it's a story, but saying, I hear this woman, I believe this woman, even as this woman is telling me that the organs of state are saying she's lying, I believe her and not the organs of state. That would have been a tremendous uh, and even perhaps life-defining moment for the young boy in that story. Arguably, he's going on to learn Torah, but he also learned an awful lot of Torah in that moment. I'm thinking also, though, of what you said about it in terms of leadership. If I'm trying to activate a group of people for any purpose, I don't try to activate the whole group. I try to activate the second, right? As soon as there's somebody else who says, hey, what that guy is saying 
makes sense. It gives permission to the others. And I'm thinking back to that moment in the party where, again, there was nothing grossly inappropriate happening, just mildly inappropriate. Wondering if I could go back and tell my 19 or 20-year-old self, hey, just look around the room and just notice if any other guys seem uncomfortable. And if there's another guy who seems uncomfortable with this talk about women or talking about how this one's hot or that one's whatever, maybe go sit next to him. And if you're if you don't feel like you're in a leadership position in the new guy, in a group of guys to stand up, maybe you can form an alliance with him. And that when it is the time to say something, you're not doing it alone. You're saying, we don't think this is okay. We're uncomfortable with this and building leadership in that way. Absolutely. I mean, well said. And in the MVP model, again, we we put people and young people and older people in all these realistic scenarios and we strategize about what the bystander, what the friend, the colleague, the coworker can do before, during or after the fact. And one of the things we do is we, we have a range of options that we talk about, because when people think they only have two options for intervention in various situations, and the two options they typically think they have are either intervene physically at the point of attack. In other words, directly get in somebody's face or, you know, whatever, do something aggressive right in that moment to respond or alternately do nothing. Just don't get involved. Right. I'm not going to do anything. Keep your hands I'm not gonna, clean. You know, right. If the, if the only two choices are those two, they often choose to do nothing because intervening aggressively, if you will, is much more anxiety producing and potentially risky, but it's a false set of choices. There's a whole range of possible things you can do and the before, during, or after the fact concept is really important here. I'll give you, I'll share with you an anecdote I think is illustrative of this. So I was doing a training at an elite East Coast University athletic program with coaches and athletic administrators. It's a few years ago. And a young man who was the men's soccer coach raised his hand and he said that he was the coach of the soccer team, but he was also coach. He also coached a 14-year-old youth soccer team. And he said a couple of weeks ago, something had happened to him where a guy on his team, one of the young men, the boys on the team, used the word rape in a really inappropriate way. And he said, like, look about raping the other team or something like that. And he said, the coach said, I was so taken aback by how inappropriate what he said was that I froze and I didn't say anything. And he said, what should I have said? And I said to him, I thought about it for a moment. I said, are you still the coach? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what about the next time you have practice? the beginning of practice, you'd sit the group down and you say, look, something happened a couple of weeks ago where one of you guys said something and I, I was so taken aback by it that I didn't know what to say. And I didn't say anything, but now I've had the chance to think about it. And here's what I want to say. And then say what you're going to say. And it was like, he hadn't thought of that. I mean, it hadn't occurred mm-hmm. to him because he thought that it was just one moment in time and it's gone now, but that's not true. So there's, there are some instances where intervening at the moment is critical especially if somebody's safety is in jeopardy. And there are some dynamics that can't be recreated. But if you think about it more broadly, like not, not just intervening in the moment, but how, how can you help to create a tone in your sphere of influence whereby others around you know that you're not accepting of mistreating other people, whether it's bullying behavior, racist behavior, anti-Semitic behavior, and certainly homophobic or sexist behavior. If you can create that aura around, aura is maybe too strong a word, but like a sense among your peers that you're not okay with that behavior and that they know that if they engage in it around you, there's going to be some tension around that because you've made it clear that that's not acceptable to you. One argument that people will make against that, against what I just said is, well, then they'll just know that around you, they won't say these things, but they'll say it around other people. And so you're not really changing anything, but I don't agree with that because you are... You're, you're helping set an example. And I'm convinced that there's an awful lot of men, including an awful lot of young men 
who are not comfortable with the abusive behavior of some of their peers, the misogyny that is exhibited by some of their friends. And the question is, how do you get them to move beyond their complicit silence? But I do think a lot of them are uncomfortable. And so by, again, by framing it as like, you have an affirmative responsibility to your own values, in addition to to women or people who are being harmed, you have a, a responsibility to your own values and your own sense of yourself I think by talking to men at that level and young men, whether they're going to act the next time that they're in a situation like that in the way that you hope, maybe that's a realistic or an unrealistic expectation. It's a process. It's a process. And I think over time, it gets easier. When, you, when you're when you 19 and you don't say something in a situation like that, maybe next time it happens, you're 21 and you're a little older, you're a little smarter you're, or a little more confident. Who knows? And over time, you grow into being a better person, if you will. And then hopefully you can communicate that to people around you. And then if you're an adult and you have influence with young people, like that guy in the story has an influence with his son, who he's he's elevating this woman to being a teacher of Torah with his son, which is high praise, if you will, for the woman, which is a very strong and powerful message that the boy is receiving. Then over time, again, if this is not just idiosyncratic and individual, but rather if we can make this happen on a broader scale, then that's how social change happens. I so appreciate you articulating this as a process. I think Oftentimes with all sorts of growth, people can be locked into, I am good or I am bad. I am doing the right thing or I'm doing the wrong thing. And recognizing, I mean, and this really is about as traditional Jewish thought as you could have of of tshuva as a lifelong process, the work of repair, repentance, being better, recognizing that we're going to screw things up and not the egregious, gross, obviously unethical screw-ups, but the little screw-ups that we make all the time and getting marginally better on it. You wrote a fabulous article, Not So Nice Jewish Boys, from the collection Brothers Keepers, New Perspectives on Jewish Masculinity. And one of the things you wrote in there was about how the violent physical competition with other boys was the quickest way to popularity in the larger culture that you grew up in. And I'd say for me, growing up in Brooklyn in the 70s, same thing, and for lots of folks, right? But if I can ask you on a personal level, if you're comfortable... What led you to shift from, you know, the three-letter varsity athlete in, uh, I think it was Boston, that sort of more macho sports culture? What, I don't know if the word is forced or enabled or invited you to shift your thinking on masculinity and gender and violence? Yeah, no, I appreciate appreciate the question. I did grow up in in what I call a a classic jockocracy, uh, just north of Boston. I was born in Boston. I grew up just north of Boston, and it was a real sports culture. You know, my town was a really well-known sports town, and football ruled uh, then and now, and I was a really good football player. And being a Jewish guy in a Catholic-centric football culture was a very interesting experience, to say the least. But I also have to say, Rabbi, I was born 15 years after the German surrender wow. in World War II, which was one of the great days in human history. And so I, I had Holocaust survivors in my own family and, and literally with tattoos on their arms. And so growing up as a Jew, knowing about, you know, the silence of the good German and the passivity on the part of other, you know, Gentiles, if you will, and other cultures, not just Germany for, you know, for centuries and how that contributed to Jewish suffering. And that was a part of my psyche from early on. And I think I succeeded in a sense because I was a good football player and and others. I played other sports, but football was my centerpiece. I succeeded at establishing a certain kind of credibility with the non-Jewish, you know, majority, if you will, 
even though I was also intellectual and cerebral, I also had the like more traditional physical skills. Sure. But I was also one of these young men who was like, I want to change the world. I had that kind of energy as a young guy when I went to college, it's not before, but when I got to college and I started reading about racism and sexism and, and heterosexism and colonialism and, and, you know, and again, big, big stuff happening in the 20th century, sure. you know, violence and war and the anti-colonial movements and the civil rights struggles, the women's movements, the gay and lesbian, the, the LGBT movements, all this stuff was happening when I was a young guy. It was like front and center because I came of age in, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was like, there's a lot of problems in the world, right? There's a lot of problems. And I was like thinking, especially around the issues of gender inequality, and I, I saw them early on. I was I was a young man who who enjoyed my freedom coming and going from parties late at night and, you know, on my campus and 20,000 students on my campus. So it wasn't it wasn't an urban campus, but it was it had urban elements to it. And I remember I lived in a co-ed dorm and my female peers on the same floor next door across the hall had a completely different level of experience around their freedom. In other words, I was coming and going at three or four in the morning, not even thinking about my safety. And these women were like, we need to know what time it is. What Are we going to get a ride home? I mean, they were constantly vigilant about their personal safety because of the fear of being sexually assaulted by men. Sure. And I remember thinking, if I were a woman and I had to live like that, I'd be so ticked off about it. And then when I saw women who were speaking out about it and who were organizing you know, for things like better lighting on campus and changing the policies, and I was like, instead of feeling defensive in the face of their righteous indignation, I was feeling like if I were a woman and I had to live like that, I would be pretty pissed off. And I thought as a white person, when I was learning about racism, similarly, if I were, say, an African-American person, I'd be so ticked off. But I also was a Jew, so I, I didn't have to imagine being a Jew. I knew what it was like to be on a tiny minority and who's historically marginalized and honestly, you know, a victim of violence. I knew that. And it all made perfect sense to me because I had been successful in the, in the traditional male sports culture. And I was completely unintimidated by it as a result, which, by the way, that's not true. But a lot of people who sure. are not in sports culture. So a lot of young men, for example, who have felt bullied by athletes or football players or young Jewish kids who are more intellectual and cerebral or artistic or something. And they feel like the sports culture is a bunch of jocks who are sort of aggressive. And because I had my foot in both camps. I felt like I had a really important voice, if you will. And I, mm -hmm. and I felt like I'm going to use this in a, in a productive way. And when I started to speak out as a young guy, I was, you know, 19 years old when I started writing about this in the school newspaper and started organizing as a, as a student activist, I would hear from women around me, a lot of women, friends and girlfriends and like, oh my God, how much they had already experienced of harassment and abuse from men. And I realized this is decades before me, too, that this is a giant problem in our species, including, by the way, in the Jewish community. Oh, sure. And one of the roles that I played, I think, in the in the Jewish community for the last 25 years is the reluctance initially of Jews to think that these were problems in the Jewish community, domestic violence and sexual assault. That's that's for the Goyim. That's the you know, but the Jews, we, we're, we're more refined than that which is not true. And it's it's not fair. It's a false stereotype. And it's a kind of a bravado that some Jews have, which is completely belied by the facts. And I have to say, without much disclosure, I mean, I did grow up in a family where there was lots of dysfunction and abuse in different ways. And I wasn't fully conscious of this in political terms until I started thinking about this more broadly. And I started realizing in my own family and then other people that I knew, I started identifying stuff and I started, it started making connections. And so I became really passionate about all this. 
and it's just flown from there. And I, I'm still doing, honestly, the work that I'm doing today is the same thing that I started doing as a 19-year-old. It's just, we need more people of integrity. We need more men of integrity to challenge and speak up about this subject. We need more white people to challenge racism, more heterosexual people to have the guts to challenge heterosexism. It's really not that complicated. We're short on time. So I'm going to ask you, this is a question that comes up on my Friday night Shabbos table every week. We've got uh, eight people and we do very quick because there are eight of us. We call them pegs. A moment from the recent past when we've been proud, a moment when we've been embarrassed and a moment when we've been grateful. So if I can invite you, we call them lightning pegs because otherwise it takes all night. So in 90 (laughs) seconds or less... A moment from the recent past when you felt proud, a moment when you felt embarrassed, and a moment when you felt grateful. Okay. I was proud that you invited me on your show. That means a lot to me. So thank you for that. That's a, that's a moment of pride. And uh, a moment of embarrassment. Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm embarrassed that I can't think of an answer to that question. <laughs> Gratitude. Um, well, I'm grateful that I have the life that I have, that I that I have the opportunities to talk to you, that I have the opportunity to be somebody whose ideas go out into the world. And can I say one last thing? One it's last not, thing. Okay. It's not even, it's related, I guess, to the gratitude, but it's related to everything else we've been talking about. With, this, with the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States and around the world, one of the reasons why Jews and the Jewish people are such a threat to the forces of maintaining traditional hierarchies, including hierarchies that keep billions of people in poverty. One of the reasons why Jews are such a threat is because the Jewish moral tradition is about caring about others, caring about the other, welcoming in the other. And so that's one of the reasons why we're at greater vulnerability to the forces of, frankly, of darkness and fascism. My father, long deceased, my stepfather, long deceased, we're both U.S. military veterans of World War II fighting fascism. And I feel like those of us who are working for social justice today in 21st century, it's sad that we have to say this, but we're working for the same cause that our long-deceased fathers and grandfathers were fighting for or against in World War II, which is fascism. And I believe that this is all connected. And I believe that individuals can play a role in their immediate sphere of influence, challenging abuse. But we're all part of a larger project of advancing human dignity and justice and fairness And I feel grateful that I'm a part of that. Awesome. Well, Jackson, thank you so much. There's so much more to say. God willing, we'll have time for another conversation on air or in person. But thank you for being with us. And for everyone who's listening, thank you for being here. And we'll see you next time on Good Jewish Lover. You can learn more about Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships, and learn about other in-depth learning opportunities at pardes.org.il. And you can find me, Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, on Instagram and Facebook, or get in touch at brent at pardes.org. Please share your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or texts you'd like us to explore. Special thanks to David Gutbazal and Jordan Steifman of Pardes, and Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab for audio engineering. Thanks for joining us, and I look forward to learning with you next time about how we can all work to become good Jewish lovers.